Welcome to the Adoption and Foster Care Journey, a podcast to encourage, educate, and equip you to care for children and youth through adoption, foster, and kinship care. Hosted by an adoptive mom with over 22 years of kinship and adoptive parenting experience, she's on this journey with you. Please welcome Sandra Flack. I have said these things to you that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That is John chapter 16, verse 33. Welcome to the Adoption and Foster Care Journey podcast. I am Sandra Flack. Um, This is our FASD Awareness Month episode series. Um, Fetal alcohol spectrum disorders affect one in 20 school-age American children and a disproportionate number of children in the child welfare system. So if you are an adoptive or foster or kinship parent, um, you may not even realize that you could be parenting someone who was prenatally exposed to alcohol. You may have been told there was some drug exposure, um, or maybe you weren't told anything at all. Um, such was the case with one of our kiddos. Um, but it's highly likely that they were prenatally exposed to alcohol. So we talk about it a lot on this show because it is so important that every foster adoptive and kinship caregiver, um, understand this invisible disability. So um, we are a resource for FASD uh, for parents and caregivers. So I hope you'll check out our website, justicefororphansny.org. And this month, September, is National FASD Awareness Month. And Justice for Orphans is a platinum sponsor for Run FASD, which is a national initiative through FASD United, uh, another another organization about FASD that you can um, check out at their website. Uh, And we're just gathering folks all across the country to form their own groups or even just go out individually um, and take a day, a time during the month of September to walk, run, bike, whatever you do, solo with a group. You can take a selfie, hashtag run FASD. Um, We're doing a local uh, meetup group in our area in the capital region of upstate New York, but you can do it anywhere, anytime throughout the month of September um, to advocate and to help make this invisible disability visible. So I am thrilled to be a a platinum sponsor for this event. Um, And before we meet today's guest, who is an adult adoptee with an FASD, Um, check out these important announcements. Natalie Vecchione of the FASD Hope Podcast and Sandra Flack of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey Podcast would like to invite you to join their Hope for the FASD Journey, a virtual support community for parents and caregivers raising individuals with an FASD, diagnosed or not. This faith-based community includes an online bi-monthly support group, a monthly VIP conversation, and a private Facebook group which includes a video devotional from Natalie and Sandra every Saturday. To register, visit justicefororphansny.org forward slash training forward slash FASD. Online 
our online support community is really vital to this parenting journey um, because when you're, especially when you're parenting a child with FASD, not to mention trauma, it can be very isolating. And I know that our community members, um, myself included, Natalie Vecchione, uh, who also co-leads the group with me, um, we just find such encouragement and support, um, gathering together three times a month uh, virtually. So I hope you'll check that out. Um, I've got some online workshops scheduled uh, coming up. I am offering a one-hour introduction to FASD uh, on Wednesday, let's see, Wednesday, September 27th at 7 p.m. Eastern time. That is a great um, one-hour session for whether you yourself are wanting to learn a little bit about FASD, or maybe you want your kiddos, grandparents, or adult siblings, or um, school teacher, youth group leader, Sunday school teacher, grandparents, babysitter, whoever, um, anybody who is really interacting with your kiddo, um, it's great to have that one hour of understanding FASD. It's an introduction. I also offer a deep dive. So if this has been resonating with you, if you've been listening to any of our episodes, we I have an, it's 18 hours worth of content online. It's six three-hour sessions. So six Wednesday nights in a row beginning October 11th at 7 p.m. Eastern time. We use the FACETS neurobehavioral model to go deep into the weeds of FASD. Um, so that's an excellent training for parents, um, school teachers, providers, relatives, anyone interacting with your kiddos. So you can check that out. Uh, we do offer certificates of completion for all of our workshops. So if you need that for your foster parent continuing training, um, you can do that. Uh, we also offer CEUs for social workers licensed in New York State. So you can check out all of our training, all of the workshops that we offer, or if you're looking for something specific for your group, I travel, I do uh, in-person uh, workshops, online workshops, one-on-one um, -on -one coaching, whatever you're looking for, you can reach out to us. You can find out more at our website. Again, that's justicefororphansny.org. So now I am so excited to introduce to you our guest. Uh, Emily Hargrove was diagnosed with full fetal alcohol syndrome at the age of one. She grew up in an adoptive family and is now married and a mother of one new baby living in Kentucky, where she and her husband are student pastors at Relevant Church. Emily has a bachelor's degree in psychology and counseling and is working on concurrent master's and PhD with a planned dissertation on FASD research. She has been a member of the FASD Changemakers for more than seven years and is one of the co-authors of the first lay of the land survey on the health issues of adults with FASD. We're definitely going to talk about that. That was published in 2020. Emily is also uh, the community education and advocacy specialist for the Papillon Center for FASD, uh, the National Organization of Fetal Alcohol Syndrome's Kentucky affiliate, and was a founding member of the first national self-advocacy network self-advocates with an FASD in action. She's a former expert panel member for SAMHSA's FASD Center for Excellence, co-authoring treatment and intervention protocols implemented throughout the United States. As a member of the Adult Leadership Committee 
of FASD Changemakers, Emily has the honor of partnering with them with a focus of strengthening autobiographical voices of adults with FASD in research. Please welcome Emily Hargrove. Hey, Emily, welcome to the show. Hello. <laughs> Thank you I'm, for Yeah, I'm so excited to have you. I have listened to you on other FASD podcasts, so I know a little bit about your story and, and just I'm so inspired by you and can't wait for our listeners and viewers to uh, hear your story. So if we could go back kind of to the beginning, what do you know or remember about your birth story? Yes. So I was born in East St. Louis and my parents, and uh, something that I always want to add before sharing about my life-giving parents is I think it's so important to be careful in sharing their story because yes, I have my story, but they have their own. And I never want to share their story from just the perspective of mine. And I think in doing so, it can help to restore some sort of dignity back into their life. You know, something that someone told me, oh my goodness, I don't even remember how many years ago now, um, was that she likes to call biological parents life-giving parents. I love that. I do too. And ever since that, I was like, oh, Ever, ever since she said those words, it really just helped to shift my perspective even more in, in favor of just restoring dignity back into their lives. Because it is so easy to, to share your own personal story from a perspective that can almost sort of demonize someone else's story. And I never, ever want to do that. So yeah. what I share is, is, I hope, like from the perspective of I understand that they were going through a lot themselves mm -hmm. and they themselves probably never had those helps or those supports that they so desperately needed. So I was born in the East St. Louis area from um, two parents that were struggling a whole lot and not to share so much of their story. Cause again, like that's more their story to share. I know that my life-giving father and my life-giving mother were not necessarily supposed to be together. And so when they found out that she was pregnant, it was sort of a oh <laughs> um, situation. And um, when I go into more private settings, I get a little bit more detailed in a lot of that information. But because I am still friends uh, with a lot of my family, I like to um, keep things, you know, uh, more surface level in this sort of setting. But my life-giving father didn't want to sign the papers to give me up for adoption. My life-giving mother didn't have the option. It was a, you are not allowed to keep your children situation. And so when my foster two adoptive parents um, got me, they were waiting in a hotel room in East St. Louis, uh, right after I was born, waiting for my dad to sign the papers. And um, they had to stay overnight because like I said, he didn't want to sign the papers. Um, but they finally got the quote unquote release <laughs> and they brought me home at a week old because I had to stay in the hospital for a week to detox from all the drugs and the alcohol. And they um, brought me home with a lot of unanswered questions, but also 
they were faith-filled people as well. And so they were also just excited to start a journey with a child that they have so desperately prayed for for so many years. And that is sort of the beginning of my life. Again, like I said, there's so many details I could share, but just to, to reiterate the fact that I think it's important to, when we talk about our children's life-giving parents, just to remember that they had a journey that they were trying to find answers for a lot of times, and maybe they didn't, and maybe they will <laughs> eventually, but just to remember to keep them um, in their story. Um, I don't know. I think just to pray for them too, <laughs> um, as we go forward, because so many kids like myself, mm -hmm. they might have grief or they might have anger or they might have these issues that that's valid as well, that they can also work towards addressing. But I think part of that is understanding the the different stories that our, our life-giving parents have as well. Yeah, I love that. I love that term, life-giving parents. I think I'm going to start using that myself <laughs> because it is, it is very honoring because they did choose life. And that's very important to acknowledge as well. So Emily, you, you mentioned that you were born, um, you had been prenatally exposed to alcohol and drugs. So growing up, what did that look like? What, what did, um, what was growing up like? Were there symptoms and signs of having been prenatally exposed? Cause you went through detox, but we know the damage done by alcohol doesn't just go away. Right. So I mean, from the very, very beginning, when I was one, <laughs> I weighed at my heaviest 11 pounds. So I wasn't gaining weight. A lot of people ask, you know, okay, so you, you had, you know, fetal alcohol syndrome. And it's funny how they always said had, you know, as if it doesn't, you know, yeah. um, as if it doesn't still remain, but I, you know, they're like, so how much did you weigh when you're born? You must've been so teeny tiny. And honestly, I wasn't that small. I was six pounds, which I mean, is, is not that tiny. My son was six, a uh, little more than six pounds and he was full, you know, term, um, healthy baby. Uh, so it wasn't so much my birth weight, but as I, you know, grew, I wasn't growing. Uh, when I was one, like I said, I weighed 11 pounds and, so my adoptive parents, they, they obviously knew something was going on. There was some other, you know, issues with sleep and, you know, there's always sleep issues with babies, mm -hmm. but my, mine was, yeah. wasn't waking up at all. You know, so many babies wake up so many times throughout the night. Mine was, will this child ever wake up? Cause she needs to eat. And so they had to forcefully wake me up to feed me, um, you know, because I would just sleep for days and day, you know, without, without being, you know woken up, they had to do that. And then I wasn't gaining weight. And, um, and so they took me from clinician to clinician trying to find out what was going on, even though they knew that I was prenatally exposed. This was 1992. And so there wasn't a whole lot of information out there as far as, you know, uh, fetal alcohol spectrum disorders and what this could possibly look like as the child gets older, et cetera. And so finally, when I was one, I received a diagnosis from a Vanderbilt clinic of fetal alcohol syndrome. But then that was pretty much it. It was, you know, here's her life history. Here's her diagnosis. Good luck. <laughs> and oh, that's so common. Yes. And so there wasn't any sort of resources offered to my parents. Um, it was like, okay, great. So this is her history. Uh, now what type of a situation? And so 
they didn't really have much to go off of, except they ironically were putting me in so many different things that were helping me and didn't even realize it. <laughs> so, you know, I was put in so many enriching environments and that's, a, that's a huge piece of this is, is not being thrown in ov- overwhelming environments, but enriching. And so I was learning piano and Spanish and taking gymnastics and doing martial arts and all of these different activities that were strengthening my brain without them even realizing they were doing so. But that doesn't mean that I wasn't struggling still. I remember one of the biggest things for me anyway, that just really stuck out to me and how I knew that I was different (laughs) uh, was having auditory and visual hallucinations as a child. And that's not, I don't think something that's often talked about. And I don't think this is necessarily something that happens a lot. I know that in a couple different studies that they, you know, upwards of 25% might have auditory and visual hallucinations, but I would try to express my fear that I was having in this. And again, it was, we don't know what to do with this. My life-giving mother, she was schizophrenic as well. And a lot of my family members were schizophrenic. I could have easily been labeled as having schizophrenic episodes. Thank God I wasn't because that's not what it was um, at all. It was actually just misfiring of the synapses. And so I actually grew out of these auditory and visual hallucinations, maybe 11, 12 years old, somewhere around there. But that was something that I remember having and questioned a lot. What's, you know, what's wrong with me? Why am I so different? Um, my dad, bless his heart. He, when I tried to express this to him, he was like, well, you know, a lot of very intelligent people, have these sort of things. And so he actually made me feel better about it, um, about what was happening. But I remember that. I remember, I remember being socially awkward. I'm still socially awkward. I mean, that doesn't go away. Uh, (laughs) I remember struggling with time tests. I was actually blessed to love learning. I still love learning. And to be gifted in that sort of way where school wasn't hard in the sense of the material was never hard for me. I loved it. It was when you put me down in a classroom and you told me I had to take a time test. That was where I was like, ah, you know, um, focusing was so difficult. Remembering not so much material, because once I understood something, I understood it. It was the remembering every day things the um, simple things like mom calling from work hey can you take out the hamburger oh absolutely but then by the time I hung up that phone I wouldn't remember it and I wouldn't do that um the just every day uh just executive functioning the Mm -hmm. adaptive functioning skills that we're lacking. And I, and I think like, if there's anyone listening to this, that maybe isn't super familiar with FASD, but is more familiar with autism, they can relate to that concept because that's so often talked about in the autism community is these executive function or adaptive functioning skills. There seems to be a gap between maybe they're super gifted in school, but there's this invisible gap of, well, then why can't they do everything else, you know, Mm -hmm. function in that sort of level my stress levels were always high. And I think that's something that is, now that is common. Maybe the auditory and visual hallucinations aren't, but 
the HPA axis, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Yes, this is dysregulated so often because of prenatal exposure to alcohol. And so our brains are constantly in this hyper stress mode. And so that can look like misbehavior. Like if we act out in a certain way, or if we yell out, or if we, you know, if we run away because we're trying to get away from all of this, this can look like behavioral issues, but really this, the root of this is our brain is not functioning the way it should. And having this sort of empathy towards people in this, <laughs> I think is so important. The sensory overload. There's mm -hmm. so many things that I can go into, right? Um, the sensory overload piece is huge because again, like I relate it back to the autism community. This is so well understood in the autism community. That's why we talk about weighted blankets and, um, and giving, you know, deep pressure hugs and having animals to help give deep pressure. And that's, I think, also important in the FASD community as well, because we're constantly being bombarded with stimuli and something I, I speak a lot. And something that I always like to share is I ask people, how many senses do you think that we have? And often people are like, oh, we have five. Duh. You know, I learned that the second grade. And I'm like, well, actually, <laughs> we have so many more senses mm -hmm. than, than just our five common senses that we teach our second graders, right? And and so if you imagine constantly having all of this information, empirical data, we have to filter through all of the time, that itchy tag on the back of your sweater, the hunger pains in your stomach, the bright lights, the sense of smell, gravity. Did you know that our skin is always picking up the sense of gravity on our skin? Um, all of these things most of us can habituize, but if you are someone who is always in this fight or flight mode because of maybe mm -hmm. some HPA axis dysregulation, for example, then oftentimes those sensory pieces cannot be habituized. Or in other words, our brain can't tell us, oh, that's not a danger piece. You, you know what it, um, what I'm saying here. Um, and something that I always like to share too is about this study, which is, I'm, I'm science-minded. I can't help it. About, I love it. Keep going. Elegant. <laughs> <laughs> so something I always share is um, there was a study done. There was um, these little Petri dish creatures called C. elegans. Hey, they have, you know, gestational period short. That's why they use them. Um, <laughs> you know, and you have this Petri dish here where the C. elegans were not exposed to ethanol or alcohol while developing. And this Petri dish over here, where they were exposed to alcohol while developing. So the scientist tapped the side of the Petri dish of the C. elegans that were not exposed, and they swim backwards because that is their response to the stimuli. So they swim backwards to get away from the stimulus. So what happens is they tap the side of the dish so many times. And what do you think happens? <laughs> they, Go ahead. Oh, yeah, they, they eventually stop swimming backwards because okay. they realize they're no longer being threatened. Oh, I see. They got used tapping. to it. It's not, yes. a yeah. it's not a threat. So they can habituize this tapping, the sensory input. Well, in this Petri dish, 
over here where they were exposed to alcohol. And the scientists do the same thing. They tap on the side of the dish. They tap on the side of the dish. What happens every single time is the C. elegans swims backwards, swims backwards, swims backwards. Every time that C. elegans thinks that it's in danger. And that's what's similarly happening in the brain of an individual exposed to alcohol is all of this information can constantly be filtered through this could be a danger input. So we don't necessarily tune out things very easily. Or the flip side of that is we can tune out everything all at once and we can look like we're completely shut off. And so as a child, those two things, those two extremes happened a lot. And so that played out in so many different scenarios of me running away, of me literally running out of cafeterias because I couldn't handle everything that was going on around me, me crying at a sporting event, um, just me lashing out because I was so overwhelmed, even though it looked like I shouldn't have been because, well, what's, you know, what's wrong with her environment? There's nothing wrong with her environment. Right. So that happened a lot. The, I mean, even just the simple things, like I couldn't stand the way socks felt. And my dad would get me dressed for school in the morning because my mom, you know, she worked in the hospital. And so she had to be there early. And so he'd be the one getting me dressed and fixing my hair. And he'd be like, I don't understand why she won't let me fix her hair or put socks on her, you know, just simple thing, everyday things like that. Um, to, to the physical conditions that I was diagnosed in high school um, with, you know, just like the heart conditions and the scoliosis and the, all of these other areas that looking back, oh my goodness, so easy to explain. But when you have actual medical doctors telling your adoptive parents, oh, this has nothing to do with prenatal exposure to alcohol. Right. You believe them because you, you know, you know, as a 15 year old kid, you're supposed to believe your doctor as the parent, you're supposed to believe the medical expert. And so um, now we know better. Right. And we can go in and we can advocate for ourselves. But you asked what yeah. it was like growing up and the symptoms I have. It's it, it's numerous. And I can think of so many different stories. But I think this is probably resonating with so many yeah. parents that are listening. Oh my goodness. And all of these times where we don't connect it to possible prenatal exposure to alcohol and, and all the times where we think it's strictly behavior and we don't realize that it's actually secondary or it's, it's really just a physical condition of brain changes. Yeah. Such a good explanation and description of it. And I know on, on our podcast, I have done a whole series of episodes each one addressing the various primary symptoms of an FASD. So executive function, memory problems, sensory, each one of those, one of those symptoms, we kind of break down what does that look like? Um, why is it taking place? And then how parents can accommodate. And you said your parents, um, you know, without knowing they were accommodating you in a lot of different ways, because back then, you know, there weren't the resources, there's, there's more resources today, but there's still a lack, right? Because when my boys got diagnosed about uh, 12 years ago with FAS, and it was the same thing, here's your diagnosis, have a nice day there. We weren't given anything. And I talk to parents today 
who will take their kiddo to a developmental pediatrician um, and they'll get a diagnosis. Sometimes they don't. I, I have one, you know, one, one, one specialist in our area, a developmental pediatrician who I know of several parents who've gone there and basically they explain on a piece of paper, this is what it is, but then they don't give the diagnosis. They say, come back in a year right and what good does that do so it's very frustrating but your your parents did a lot of a lot of good things you mentioned but you are so well educated in this when did that happen when did you finally like where did you get your FASD training where you were like that's that this is what's going on where you really began to understand FASD my mom was really great at i mean from the beginning just explaining Okay, you know, you're adopted, your brother's adopted, uh, you, you know, you come from two totally different families and two totally different stories. And here's what I know about these stories. And, and I think it's important that you understand this. And for me, that's a huge gift and blessing. Um, and I, I always encourage if someone comes to me and they ask me, hey, do I do I tell my child about I'm like, oh, absolutely. Of mm -hmm. course, in the way that they best can understand it um, at their age level, of course. Um, and so I had always known that I was prenatally exposed to these things. And in fact, she would she wouldn't just tell me, she would show me, you know, here's this newspaper clipping of, of your dad's funeral. And, and here's this medical report. And um, here's what was said here. And uh, so I would have, you know, these pieces of evidence. And to me, and I've always described it, it was like, and I feel like maybe other adoptees can relate to this. If you're adopted, sometimes you kind of just feel like you're floating, like, you know, who am I? Um, mm -hmm. And so these kind of literal physical material pieces that she would show me helped like weight me down. Like, oh, this is who I am. And not in the sense of like, oh, I, I strictly identify as just someone with FASD, but it helped me understand from where I come and, and it helped me understand maybe why I struggle some of the ways that I do. And when she told me, oh yes, you were diagnosed. Um, you know, when you were one from this doctor at this clinic, I Googled, <laughs> which is both good and bad, right? Exactly. <laughs> you, know, you can find some bad things on Google, but the more I researched, the more I was like, aha, and, and going back to that, that analogy of, of being weighted down, they, they, they were more pieces that helped weight me down and help me understand why I operate the way I do. So often we talk about, you know, maybe personality tests and how um, those can be beneficial because they can help us learn how we relate to ourselves and relate to others. And, and we can talk about how other medical diagnoses help us navigate, you know, better how we can support ourselves and help others support us as well. And I think FASD is the same way. I think once you receive that diagnosis, it's it's like that piece that helps you, again, not say this is exactly who and only who I am, but I do deserve to know this because I can now, I can, I can learn how I can support myself better. I can learn how I can advocate for myself better. And so that's, 
I think for me, really, I, I didn't start that deep dive <laughs> um, until I was probably around 17. I, I might maybe started like at 15, learning more about it. But at 17, I was like, ah, oh, this is it. I'm all in. <laughs> I'm going to learn more and more. And and I started going to conferences and speaking and, um, and then that learning side of my brain the, the the loves learning was like ooh i could i could really like this could be a career path even and so i once i started deep diving into this it was like okay all right this is this is it and um again that education piece i think is so important for not just the parents but i think it's a gift to give to the child as well yeah. And you just, you, you dove right in and tried to learn everything that you, that you could about it. Um, and then I think you did sort of choose it as a career path because you have, you have a bachelor's you're going through for your master's, um, which that gives us hope because I know so many, first of all, so many kids, so many kids in foster care, I know you were adopted. They don't always go to college. Right. And then, especially if there's learning challenges because of prenatal exposure, you know, they need a lot of special education, my boys um, included. So how, how do you, how do you navigate college and, and, and learning with an FASD? So <laughs> um, I, I am almost done with my PhD. Oh my goodness. This has been a journey. Wow. Um, so there's, for, for me, I've definitely learned that if it's something you're passionate about, it's easier. <laughs> so many people are like, so is this harder than you thought it would be? And I'm like, no, like, I think it's been easier because of how much I love, you know, learning, but, and, and I love dedicating my degree towards FASD. And I think that's a huge piece of it. And so if someone's passionate about something and they're determined, that's way more important than having any sort of intellectual, you know, uh, level, uh, certainly. So, and, and that's, again, something else that I've learned. So many people think that, oh, you have a PhD, you just must be highly intelligent. And maybe they are, and that's great if they are. But I think the more you learn, the more you learn how much you don't know. <laughs> and so it's actually a huge humbling experience for one. But then the other part of that is it's not, again, it's not so much about the intellectual level. Cool. If you have it, if you don't, fine. It's, it's, <laughs> it's about that level of determination that I mm -hmm. think can be carried out, not just in the educational sphere, but in all aspects of life that I've learned that those of an FASD have, we are, we persevere. <laughs> Sometimes we perseverate on things we shouldn't, but if we can refocus that onto the pieces that are important, onto the passions that are important, that can carry us a long way. And so for me, that's carried me. Now, as far as challenges go, when I was an undergraduate, I, um, it, it time test again, I go back to that, that, that carried on in undergraduate. And so I would have to fight for extensions of time um, for tests that never meant necessarily that I got that much of a one. <laughs> um, but that was, that was something for me. I struggled with being on time for class, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, but, you know, I think my teachers were very um, 
graceful because uh, I was very, I was always number one or number two in, in all of my classes. And so they, I think, were very understanding in that way. Thank God um, <laughs> that I didn't get kicked out or anything like that. Um, at this level, as far as, you know, graduate school goes, I have gotten married and had a kid since starting the PhD program. And I have been able to take it at my own pace, which has been great. Sometimes I get in my head and I'm like, oh, Emily, you, you know, you've been at this program for however many years now, Is it five or six years, five, five years. Um, you should be done by now. And then I'm like, no, no, I don't know. This isn't a race, right? Um, the importance is not how fast, you know, you get there. It, it's, again, it goes back to that level of perseverance. Do you persevere? Um, and so I keep reminding myself to keep running the race, like, like the Bible says, with endurance um, and, and not so much about with speed and understanding that it's important to um, respect where you're at in life too. And so for me, being able to take those moments of just being with my child when he was first born or just being with my husband when we first got married um, and understanding that I can take those same levels of, I don't want to say slowness, but again, just respecting the season that I'm in is okay. And so that's been able to sustain me um, in the doctorate program uh, that I think and to really pull on this FASD aspect of it, we can tire so easily, both physically and mentally, because our brains are working so hard just to be, <laughs> just to be. And so respecting ourselves in the way of this is the way my brain and my body works. And that's okay. If I take another extra year or two to cross the finish line, that's fine that's fine because I'm going to get there. I'm going to be a year or two older regardless. So <laughs> if, if it takes me another year or two to get to the finish line, I'm okay with that because um, sometimes we need to give ourselves that kind of grace too. Just like I was grateful that my, my professors gave me grace. It's okay that we ourselves gives our, give us graces as well. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So I love the fact that you use your strengths, which really your passion for FASD, your passion for learning all about it um, definitely has helped you. And the, the, the perseverance, perseverating on that thing that you're passionate about, um, the determination. I love that. For um, the folks that are watching this, my lights shut off in the room that I'm in. So I suddenly went dark because um, on the other side of the room, there's a motion sensor light and there was no motion over there. So it went, went off. So we're working out the kinks for the for the um, the video portion of this. So um, just wanted to point that out why I'm now sort of in the dark. Um, I also wanted to um, ask Emily about you mentioned your marriage. You had a baby. Um, has your FASD posed any challenges in that part of your life? I think. Oh my God. I think this goes for any mother. We can get overwhelmed, right? Yeah. Um, like, ah, the, the housework, the everything. I'm like, I can't. Um, so I, you probably now have heard of the International Adult Leadership Collaborative 
of the FASD Changemakers, really long name that we just call ourselves ALC for short. <laughs> um, something, and of course, you know, for those that don't know who we are, we are just a group of international um, members that have an FASD and we advocate and we educate and we do our own research and um, we're connected globally, which is incredible because we're able to connect with global leaders and make real change, which of course is where that word change makers comes from. But something that we always joke about is we need someone to help us with housework tremendously, <laughs> tremendously. And if there's anyone with ADHD, you don't even have to have an FASD diagnosis. Just if you can relate to that ADHD portion, you understand. <laughs> um, it's that to me is a huge challenge is I don't know how people do it. Honestly, I, my hats go off to mothers who can mother and do other areas of life and have a clean house. I, when I go to other mom's houses and their houses are immaculate, I'm like, oh my gosh, you are a super woman. Like, <laughs> um, because I can't do it. It's, it's so challenging to me. I am someone who I'm an in the moment type of a person. And my focus is on one thing essentially. So if I'm at home with Elias, that's my son's name. Um, my focus is heavily, heavily on him. And I can't necessarily split up my focus in a way where I can be, well, executively functioning the way I should, <laughs> where I can do this and this and this and this and do it well. It's just not going to happen for me. Um, and again, going back to the, my brain and my body, they tire easily. And so I probably rely too heavily on caffeine. Who doesn't though nowadays? <laughs> I'm sorry, kidneys. Um, uh, but it, it's when you wake up tired because you don't sleep well. Well, for one, my child still doesn't sleep through the night. Um, but then I just don't sleep well in general. Uh, and, and then when your body is struggling, whether it be with a migraine or the heart condition that I have or my anemia or my hypoglycemia, and then when you're trying to make sure your child is fed and you're doing all these other things well, and then you are like, I didn't eat. Oh my gosh, I forgot to eat. And then, oh, now my hypoglycemia is acting up. And, um, and then uh, just being completely transparent. And I think a lot of moms just relate to this in general. Then you feel like I failed at everything, <laughs> right? Like I can't do anything well. And so those, those are definitely challenges. Of course, they're, they're not rational thoughts, right? I, I know that we, you know, we, we get in our heads and then we think, and so then we have to rationally talk to us wait a minute, did your child survive? <laughs> yes. Was he well loved? Yes. Okay. We won. We won the we won. day. That's right. Um, That's right. Might not have gotten anything else done, but I won today, uh, at least in that regard. So those, those definitely are challenges. And then I think that carries over in in just being a spouse in the sense of um okay so if I if I'm not doing all of these things well in the home then that probably reflects on me you know um and then again that goes back to oh am I being rational um but then another part of that is I don't 
I'm going back, I'm pulling out um, this socially awkward piece here is that I don't necessarily communicate like everyone else. I don't socially connect with everyone else in the same way. My husband is very good at connection and connecting with people and loving on people. And I am more just like trying to remember social roles of talking to people correctly. And oh, wait, that I probably shouldn't bring that up in this conversation. And I just sounded so weird. And, um, <laughs> and so just navigating relationships alongside of my spouse and trying to be normal, <laughs> whatever normal really means is another piece of that. And, um, you know, for me, I don't crave being in other relationships in the sense of, Oh, I need to have multiple friendships or, and, and, and a lot of people want to say, okay, well, uh, biblically that's not right because we're, we're meant and built for community. And I can relate to that and I can understand that. And I think to a degree, yes, absolutely. For me and my brain, that is exhausting beyond exhausting. Mm -hmm. And I'm not just talking about introversion versus extroversion. That's a piece of it. Sure. I'm talking about when we are constantly trying to, again, navigate social rules, um, be normal. <laughs> uh, and, and we talk about masking a lot. And I like to talk about this in the FASD community. It's that masking. Um, is exhausting. And not that we're trying to pretend to be someone we're not, we're just trying to, and, and maybe we shouldn't, I don't know, um, make everyone else feel comfortable. <laughs> um, make everyone else not feel quote unquote, sorry for us, or, or we don't want anyone else to try to feel like they have to always be accommodating of whatever our struggle is that day. Right. And so we're always and that goes for our spouses as well. Like I don't I always I feel bad, like trying to put some of that on him. And so then it goes back to now I have to try to always be one way and always try to be um, just right for for whatever situation I'm in. And that's exhausting. Be that in my relationships, um, you know, with my you know, in my relationship with my spouse or in our friend group or whatever. And so these are definitely challenges that I navigate. <laughs> yeah. So let me just ask you this this piece of it, because you mentioned how the, the the cleaning the house is a is a struggle part for you. Is your is, does your husband does he accommodate you in that area? Does like he pick up the slack? Like in what ways is he supportive of you? Oh, yes. Yeah. So he, he likes, to, well, I don't know if he likes to do dishes, but he's the <laughs> dish doer in the house. And that was definitely one thing before we got married. I was like, listen, I don't like dishes. <laughs> um, to you. And it was really funny because when he first um, came over to my parents' house, he, it, it actually, this is probably before I told him the whole dish situation. I walked in the kitchen and he was doing the dishes. I'm like, I'm not going to marry you. <laughs> Again, check mark. I mean, what, you know, um, you don't know this, sir, but uh, you're probably going to be doing that for the rest of your life. So <laughs> um, no, he, of course, like, I think what makes it difficult is, you know, 
he, being a pastor, he, he doesn't have like this set schedule or he's always needed somewhere else. And so for him, I know that it can be heavy to, to always be needed over here in so many different ways and then come home and like have to try to carry that as well. And, and again, that's what spouses are for. We're supposed to carry each other. And so I think he is really good at understanding that, but I also feel bad too, that, um, he has to try to pick up the slack a lot. But I am very grateful that he does issues and he's an excellent cook. He's Filipino. And so he learned from his Filipino grandmother, Filipino grandmother, how to cook and cook well. So when he cooks, <laughs> it, it's a good meal. It's a very yeah. good meal. <laughs> That's wonderful. That's wonderful. And you mentioned he's a pastor. So together you're, you're pastoring. Tell us about that part. Yes. Yeah, so we pastor well, at our church, we call it the next generation. And so we're sixth grade through college and we, we just love pouring into the lives of the students. And I think actually, really, I, I don't even know why I just used that phrase because that's a phrase I'm not even a big fan of is pouring into something I prefer over that phrase is lighting the fire <laughs> because pouring into just kind of implies that they're empty vessels and that they can only, you know, um, grow if someone else is born, but that's not true. Right. Uh, if they have Christ, they have all that they need. If they have the Holy spirit, they have all that they need. And maybe they just need someone walking alongside of them to just ignite that within them, to encourage them to, um, uh, employ accountability, whatever that looks like in their life. But being able to do that has been super exciting and, Lately, we've got to witness our students just really that that fire really building in them, which is mm -hmm. incredible to know that um, our next generation really, really has passions. And I think so often we look down on the next generation as, oh, they're young. They make dumb mistakes. They don't know what they're doing or what they're doing. I think that's such a wrong way of looking at the next generation because yes, they make mistakes. So do adults, <laughs> right? We still make mistakes every single day. And so um, they, I think can be more encouraging than sometimes even the quote unquote older generation because of the passion that they have and the fact that they're not letting it go out and the fact that they're wanting to feed it and the fact they're wanting to grow and learn and make a difference in their community and, and in the world around them has been super exciting to walk beside and, and witness. I love that. Love it. Um, love what you're doing there. I want to jump to, um, cause you, you listed some physical conditions that you struggle with. So I wanted to jump into, uh, the lay of the land survey, um, which you, which, uh, you, you co-authored and that's about the 428 comorbidities, co-concurring health conditions common, um, in those who are prenatally exposed to alcohol. I know my own kiddos, I have my, my two boys that have FAS both had crossed eyes when we adopted them and had to have that surgery. One of them, his optic nerve in one of his eyes is much smaller than a typical optic nerve. Um, one of them has severe scoliosis and had to have multiple surgeries, has a lot of skeletal, you know, abnormalities, I guess I would say. So I totally get where these comorbidities are definitely related. So would you share about this study, how that came about and, and what, what was discovered through it? 
Sure. So you, you mentioned cross eyes. I really thought about how I was born with cross eyes too, but the, the 428 that actually comes from Dr. Paplova. Poplova. She she wrote that study on the comorbidities and Popova. I don't know why I was calling her Popova. It's Popova. Mm-hmm. If you want to look that study up, that was back in 2016, I believe. Um, but our study, we, we, I'll tell you actually how it came about, which I think yeah. is pretty. We were sitting around, when I say we, members of the ALC, we were sitting around in uh, Canada at a conference and someone mentioned something about hernia surgery. And someone said, so you're going to have that when you get back. No way. I, I just had that. And uh, someone else mentioned, uh, you know, hip problems and scoliosis, you know, all these things kept being thrown around the table. And we were all like, wait a minute, I have that too. Or I'm getting that checked out next week. And so we knew that something was going on and, and we felt like, okay, so is alcohol affecting all of these organ systems as well? And I mean, just common sense tells you that alcohol isn't going to just bypass the organ systems and go straight to the brain and only affect the brain. It it would tell you that no, likely it's affecting these other organs. And so what we did is we got together and we said, you know what, let's ask our community, do you have this condition or this condition. And so we asked over 200 line items about different conditions. Now, diagnosable conditions, not just, you know, do you have stomach pain? Well, that, you know, that you can't really, that doesn't really mean much, right? It was things like, do you have supraventricular tachycardia, which is um, a heart condition? Did you have chronic air condition, chronic, ear infections as a child? Do you have, you know, those type of things? Were you diagnosed with this cancer? Have you been diagnosed with early onset dementia, et cetera, et cetera. So all of these different conditions. And so um, over 500 people responded to the survey. And what we discovered was that for nearly everything, those with an FASD, have increased risk of developing these chronic healthcare conditions at exponentially increased rates as compared to general population statistics. And so that's what we were looking at was, okay, so how often does it occur in the general population compared to um, what people were saying in our survey? And so for all of these conditions, with the exception of obesity, um, ironically, it was just occurring in rates that it shouldn't be, but it, but are. And there's so many different things that were reported that, okay, well, that typically doesn't happen until someone reaches the age of 50, but the average age of the respondent was like 27.8, 27.4. I'm trying to remember because we actually reopened it and redid the statistics, but it was below the age of 28, below the age of 30. And so how is it that all of these things are occurring at such increased rates at such young ages? And so what we were saying then is, okay, there needs to be more research done here. What, you know, what's going on? What are the specific mechanisms? 
Now, are we aging faster? Are we breaking down faster? What does this look like when we do turn 50? Uh, you, you know, all of these different concerns that we have. And then part of it, I think a huge piece of this is if we understand that indeed our physical health, not just our brain, but our physical health is being affected to some degree, then can we do things to help prevent, not necessarily prevent it from occurring, but prevent it from progressing or prevent it from being as severe as maybe it could? Because if we're going to our cardiologist, like I did when I was in high school and saying, hey, this is happening, I'm passing out, you know, um, my heart rate, it, it got up to 180 beats per minute at rest and something's going on. And I'm telling my cardiologist, hey, I was prenatally exposed to alcohol. And he looks at me and says, that has nothing to do with your heart. Yeah. And it's like, oh, wait a minute now. Yes, it does. Um, if we can better understand that, no, in fact, a lot of these physical problems can be brought back to that prenatal exposure to alcohol, then I think that we can employ better, um, again, maybe not necessarily prevention, but just better intervention and better understanding. And then another huge piece of that was that we started to see and understand that medicine doesn't work in the same way. There's so many contraindications yeah. um, within our population, but then maybe there was just paradoxical responses as well. Like, you know, um, and I go back to the auditory and visual hallucinations that I was having as a child, and I could have been diagnosed with schizophrenia, but I wasn't. If I was put on an antipsychotic, it wouldn't have worked, but I would have been put on medicine for, my parents would have spent money. I may have had negative side effects. And all for what, um, you know, and so if we better understand how our physical health can be affected um, and, and, and see that in our children as well, that, oh, you know what, maybe they're struggling not because of a behavior issue, but because they can't hear in school. <laughs> and so maybe they're acting out because they have a hearing deficiency or um, maybe they aren't behaving the way you think they should because they're not sleeping at night. But if we are not understanding that, and then I go back to myself and I said, you know, these are ways that I knew that I was different, but there's a lot of ways that I didn't know I was different because I didn't know not everyone acted that way. <laughs> you know, I didn't know that it wasn't common to wake up every 20, 30 minutes at night. You know, how was I supposed to know that I wouldn't have known to go to my parents and say, I'm not sleeping at night. I wouldn't have known that because I just assumed everybody slept in that way. But mm -hmm. if we understand that these things might be affected, then maybe our parents can say, hey, you know, I've been thinking about this and I've noticed uh, you start getting shaky. Maybe your blood sugar has dropped. You know, I don't know. I'm just, there's so many different scenarios where if we better understand that our physical health might be affected, then we can address that as opposed to trying to think that, oh, this is just a behavior issue and, and we can address it with medication. Yeah. Yeah. And I totally, we've had a similar experience. My son who had the severe scoliosis, we adopted him when he was three. His spine was like a little corkscrew. And as he grew, it just continued to twist. And, and we had a fabulous 
um, orthopedic surgeon who treated him. And he was, you know, my son was, I always said we were, we were a long-term case, right? A frequent flyer at the orthopedic surgeons, uh, multiple surgeries. Um, and I would point out, you know, cause my son was, was always a topic of conversation in the OR as he was on the operating table doing what they were doing to his spine. Other people would comment on his interesting skeletal system, right? And I remember telling the pediatrician, well, or sorry, the orthopedic surgeon, you know, I think that the prenatal exposure to alcohol had something to do with this. And the doctor was very, I loved him, but he was dismissive, like, oh, we wouldn't know that. Mm -hmm. And and I think specialists tend to focus on their area and not see all the connected parts. Whereas, you know, as parents or as you as an individual with an FASD, we kind of see the whole picture and we can see how, you know, it makes so much sense while this baby was in the womb, if mom was drinking um, during the time that the skeletal system was being formed, it makes sense that the skeletal system would have been negatively impacted by the alcohol, not just the brain, right? Like you said. So I think it's important for parents to be aware of this because many of us are parenting kids prenatally exposed and they also have other health conditions. And when we know there could be a connection between that, we can better advocate for healthcare medication. I know oftentimes individuals with an FASD cycle through meds. They have a higher metabolism, so they need higher levels of medication than the average person, right? Because they're cycling through the medication so much faster. Um, I know one of one of I know a social worker who who specializes in, in FASD, and she said she has seen kiddos with an FASD on medications that would normally make an adult be asleep on the floor. And this kid is still running around the room, right? Because they just metabolize it so much faster. So all of this is so related and so important for us to know. So I appreciate that, that study and that information that's out there. Um, so Emily, let, let's, um, what are your goals? What are, what are, what are your plans? What are your goals for the future? <laughs> How much time do you know? Uh, so, <laughs> yes. So I, I completed um, a master's of philosophy. And so I used that to become certified as a philosophical counselor. And I launched a website. <laughs> um, oh. Emily, it's really long. <laughs> I don't know why I did this to myself, but um I always just go on Google and type in Emily Hargrove Consulting, but the long part of it is Emily Hargrove FASD Counseling and Consulting.com. And on there, I just kind of show that I offer, you know, philosophical counseling services, my speaking services that I do. And when I speak, of course, it always depends on the audience. I, I love going into um, rehab centers. That's one of my one of my hearts is going into the rehab centers and speaking directly towards maybe they have an FASD themselves. Maybe they're a mom who's afraid they have a child with FASD or what, whatever that looks like for them, but meeting them where they are and just speaking life and hope into their life. I love doing that. And so I share a combination of, of the research and because again, it's so important to be informed um, but then also to my personal story. And then I kind of shift into pastoral mode just a little bit um, and just kind of combine all of those pieces when I speak. Um, and of course, you know, tailor it, of course, to whatever audience 
I'm, I'm speaking to be it doctors or like I talked about going to um, earlier, I spoke with you about talking to CASA meetings and court appointed special advocates or whatever. And so I do this sort of thing. And then of course I launched a, a, a clothing and accessory line <laughs> for FASD oh. because I, I don't know. I just think sometimes we we can be afraid to advocate, especially if there's stigma surrounding yeah. whatever it is. And I love seeing so many people advocate for so many different things like, and I keep going back to autism, but autism or Down syndrome or, or whatever the diagnosis is, I would love to see more people advocating, whether that be self-advocacy or, or just advocating in general for FASD. And I think one way of doing that is using our voice on clothing. I mean, we do it for other things. Why not, you know, um, our clothing and and just start a conversation because have, do you have a website or like, how do we find out about the clothing? Yeah, it's on that same website, um, Emily Hargrove, FASD Counseling and Consulting. (laughs) The way too long title. Um, We'll put a a link in the show notes so that our our listeners and watchers can can find it easily. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Um, Yes. And so for me, it's hopefully a conversation starter to just say, hey, yeah, this is what this is about. Because so many people, I don't know how many times like I go into an environment, they know I'm coming and they still don't even know much about FASD or have heard of FASD. And, like, and that's one of the first questions that how many of you have heard? And it's astonishing to me how few people raise their hands uh, and they're like, no, don't tell me, you know. So I think this is one way of of just getting a conversation started. And for me, I, I want to continue in the research realm as well, which is what my, my PhD is psychology with a research focus. I love research. I love anything to do quantitatively. Ironically, my dissertation is qualitatively focused. And in other words, I'm, I'm looking at inter- interviews and I'm, I'm, I'm delving into how individuals with an FASD express their spirituality, their faith formation, and using that information just to help better inform them and in their spiritual or faith development and those that want to help walk alongside them in that journey. Because I I think um, it's important that we look at that aspect of development, not it hasn't been done yet. So I, I think it's been done in other communities and it's been very beneficial for, for those with other developmental disabilities, but not yet with those with an FASD. And so that's something I'm working on right now as well. Uh, I just wrote a children's book, but it's really more like a children's book slash journal um, prompt where it can be used for caregivers or um, anyone who's trying to raise a child with an FASD, as far as introducing them to FASD and what it looks like for them, what it could look like for them. But not just that, this isn't like one of those, oh, you're going to struggle with this, 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 and this, and you're not going to do that. It's not that perspective. It's how do we look at your FASD in a way where we can build on the strengths of it? And mm-hmm. so, uh, right now, the title is called FASD is my superpower. And so oh, it's, wow. 
Yeah, it's it's journal prompts to help them learn more about themselves. And maybe maybe they have some questions and they can use this to help answer those questions. And it's to help them realize that, yes, I may have challenges, but here's how I can address that or here's how I can use this to go forward in the best way possible. I haven't published it yet. I'm working on it, um, <laughs> but that's that's a project of mine as well. And of course, continuing all the work that we're doing with the ALC, some exciting news just came out. We actually get to have our adult conference again, which is super exciting. It will be not in Vancouver this year, but in Seattle, Washington, just right across you know, the border. Uh, and so that's going to be occurring next year. I am so thrilled to have FASD United on board to help us launch that and to help us just be yet again a voice in the conference community. But something that I know so many people look forward to every year and just to have that going again. Uh, so yeah, I'm going to be there this year. Really? Um, yeah, so I'm going to bring my son who will be 18 um, with an FAS. Um, so I, it's my first time, had never been before. Uh, and um, our, our nonprofit is an FASD United affiliate here in New York State. So um, yeah, I'll be just, I'm looking forward to, to being there. So I get to meet you in person. Ooh, that's exciting. Yeah. I need to actually be in person again, as opposed to just yeah. you know, across the screen. Mm -hmm. For so, sure. so exciting. So, so Emily, you give us great hope. Um, like I said, I'm a parent of two kiddos, two teenagers with FAS. Um, you know, that can be so challenging. And our listeners are primarily adoptive and foster parents, definitely parenting kiddos with trauma. Um, many of us are parenting kiddos prenatally exposed. Some of us don't even know that that's what's going on. So would you offer us some, offer parents listening or watching in, some encouragement, some advice as we are caring for kiddos with an FASD? There's so many, so many pieces that I could dive into as far as just meeting them where they are. Mm -hmm. And that's not just for, of course, you know, our, our children that we are fostering or adopting. I think that goes for anyone. Meeting them where they are yeah. is such a huge part of this. This employing compassion and understanding is a huge part of what I always share is just understanding that we all have a story and respecting that story. That's not to say we leave them where they are and say, mm -hmm. oh, okay, you know, um, but we, we build on that. We pull them out of that. And in, in something that I think as the ALC that we, we're, we love talking about is the fact that we shouldn't be viewed as individuals that are broken and need fixing. Mm -hmm. You know, in the same way that we don't look at someone who is blind and say, oh, you know, if we could just get them to see, then everything will be okay. We, we, we don't right. do that. We understand that they need accommodations and we employ those accommodations and, and we don't have, and we do that gratefully. And, and I think the same thing should be done for our kiddos with an FASD or suspected FASD. We meet them where they're at. We understand that changes to the brain are changes to the brain. It's not something that we need to pray away or fix. This is something that we need to understand and 
pull out those strengths of, I used this example earlier. Yes, maybe they perseverate on something, but how can I use that as a mm-hmm. strength? Um, they have so many, uh, <laughs> uh, so many ways that they actually can make other people view the world in a better way. And if we can use that and pull on that, I think that's one. That's not to say that there aren't going to be challenging days or days where we don't want to pull out our hair <laughs> or days where we're like, what am I doing? Um, and you actually asked me in an email, like what one of my favorite verses were. <laughs> and I'm like, ah, so many, too many. I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, running the race with endurance, right? And, and how if we do not give up, in due season, we will reap a good harvest, right? Mm-hmm. And I think of all of these things, but then I was like, Emily, what, what's the verse on that you always have on your computer? And it's James one twenty seven, and it's about, mm-hmm. you know, caring for the widows and the orphans and, and refusing in that process to let the world corrupt you. And it's actually reworded on my computer to just say, refuse to let the world corrupt you. Mm. And I think so often we can get in the nitty gritty of the lives of others and we can let that jade us and we can let that become, let we can become bitter. We can become, maybe we're bitter to the life-giving parents. Like you did this, you know, we can have this sort of perspective of you did this to my child. Why did you do? And we can ask these questions. Why God, why is the world so bad? Why is it? And I don't think that's the perspective. We, and I'm not saying that it's not justified. I'm not saying that we can't just for a moment go there because God is big enough to handle anything like that, right? We can go in with any question, but I think we need to look at it more like we're all broken. We all come from a place that's broken. We're all people that need grace. We're all people that need understanding. And if we can look at our kiddos from a hard place and say, in what way, God, have you given me the strength to bring this child up in a way that shows that level of grace that you have given me? then there's nothing, right? There's nothing that we can't do as a family unit because uh, so many scriptures, I mean, you know, Christ gives us strength and all of the, right? Um, mm-hmm. I do all things in, in, and it's not, I can, I can, you know, for me, per, my personal journey was to receive a doctorate. My job isn't to tell everybody that they can receive a doctorate. My job is to tell everybody that you have been given a specific purpose here on earth. And that just so happens to be my passion. But we can cultivate the passions and and we can grow the heart for compassion in our kiddos. And in doing so, that's what that's what that verse can mean is I can do all things through Christ that gives me strength. It's not I can do anything that I want to do. No, it's I can do what God has called me to do. And I believe if we were called into fostering, then God has, can give you the strength to do so. And if we can understand that when we pull any kid pull any child out of a hard place that even though they may have struggled 
even though they're going to continue to struggle, even though their life-giving parents have struggled, God is still good. God is still on the throne. And if we can have that perspective and then we can refuse to let the world corrupt us and anything Mm -hmm. negative that has happened in the lives of our children, that's a huge place (laughs) from which we can start. And there's so many ways we can work in such a way that we can start to see stigma come down. We can start to see full inclusion occur. We can fight for our kiddos to have full inclusion, regardless of their background, regardless of their story, because they deserve a seat at the table too. Then just imagine just going forward, the positive impact that they're going to have in the world around them. And just the fact that we as And I I say parents as if I've adopted someone with an FASD and I haven't, but I'm just imagining if I did, (laughs) Um, just imagine just the small role that we can play in their life and just looking forward and seeing their future play out in such a way, knowing that God has gifted them with a unique purpose too. I, I don't know. There's just so many good things that can come out of having that sort of mindset. Hmm. Wow. Well, Emily, thank you so much for just encouraging us and sharing your story and for all that you're doing on behalf of the FASD community and, and um, there in your church and, and uh, lighting up the, the youth. I was going to say pour in, but you said that's not the way to say it. <laughs> I, I sometimes still say it too, so it's okay. Yeah, it's okay. So, but thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you so much. So Emily was amazing and so inspiring. And it's, it's, uh, this is why FASD is an, is an invisible disability because she's beautiful and speaks so eloquently and is so knowledgeable and passionate. You would never know she has an invisible disability. You wouldn't know she has an FASD. But she does. And and as she dug into her story and shared with us all of the different challenges that she faces and all of the different symptoms that she has, um, then we get to know and and you can see why this is such um, an important thing for us to understand and to talk about, because it could be affecting our kiddos who need accommodations throughout their childhood, but also into adulthood, because they're not going to suddenly outgrow an FASD. It's it's a condition that is always there. So we will put links in the show notes for this episode so that you can get, um, you can find uh, Emily's website um, and, and check out more of what she's doing, inclu- including that FASD clothing. I'm going to go check that out. Um, and thank you for spending this time with us today, for watching, for listening to the Adoption and Foster Care Journey. Um, I hope you were inspired by Emily's conversation as much as I was. Um, We inspire you here at JFO, but we also want to equip you for your unique parenting journey. Um, So don't forget our resources that you can find on our website, which is justicefororphansny.org. We have a lot of information about FASD. We have training and workshops and articles, and I blog about this. This podcast is always accessible to you. Um, So we want to make sure that you're aware of all of those resources because I was that mom also who my kids got diagnosed, but there were no resources. And when I went to Google it, it was a nightmare what I discovered. Um, And that was 12 years ago. And now there are 
better resources out there. And there are amazing podcasts that are FASD specific that you can listen to. Um, but we want to help you for your parenting journey. So so go to our website, justicefororphansny.org, and you can click on at the top of the page. I believe it's a tab that says training and it'll drop down and you'll see FASD. We've got lots of workshops online and in person that you can take advantage of. Um, and if you're interested in, in just scheduling a call with me to do a one-on-one, -on -one, maybe have some consulting, you can set up that there as well. Don't forget about the FASD support community that we have um, to, to bring hope so that you're not doing this parenting journey alone, but in community. And also, if you enjoyed this podcast, uh, subscribe, follow um, on your favorite podcast platform here on YouTube as well. Um, let your fellow adoptive and fostering friends know um, so that they can be encouraged and equipped to. We are also on social media, so you can check us out at Justice for Orphans. Um, I'm there too. You can follow me, Sandra Flack. Um, and I thank you. Thank you for being with us today. Um, I'm thrilled to have you along for the journey. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey podcast, brought to you by Justice for Orphans. We hope you were encouraged today. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review and share it with your fellow foster and adoptive parent friends so they can be encouraged too. Be sure to find and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Justice for Orphans. And check out our website for vital resources at justicefororphansny.org.